Hi, welcome to the podcast. It's John Campbell here. I'm your host and I'm a veterinarian professor at the Western College of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Saskatchewan. This week, I'm pleased to welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Gabriel Ribeiro, who is trained both as a veterinarian and nutritionist. Gabe's the Saskatchewan Industry Beef Chair here in the Department of Animal Science at the University of Saskatchewan. And today we're going to chat about some of Dr. Ribeiro's recent research on ergot and its effect on cattle. Let's get started. Welcome back to the podcast, Gabe. It's uh, been a while since we had you on last, so maybe I can start by having you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background and what you do here at the University of Saskatchewan. Uh, thanks, John. It's great to be back in the podcast. Uh, so I'm a assistant professor in the Saskatchewan Beef Industry Chair here at the Department of Animal and Poultry Science at the University of Saskatchewan. And my job is basically uh, I teach and do research with beef cattle, uh, mostly focused on the nutrition production side. In terms of the research areas that I work is I basically try to group at three main areas. So basically is development of nutritional strategies to improve feed digestion efficiency and animal health and reduce the environment impact of beef cattle production. And the third one would be replace the use of antibiotics as growth promoters, right? So those are the main areas that I try to to work and most of my work kind of kind of fits into that. Well, we want to talk today about something you've been doing some work on in the last couple of years and that's ergot toxicity and how it can affect cattle. Let's maybe start by just explaining what ergot actually is. So ergot is basically a, a plant uh, infection by a fungus of the genera claviceps. Uh, so these infections promote the development of the ergo bodies, uh, the replacement of the seed in and cereals and some forages with that ergo body that's full of ergo alkaloids that are toxic to animals. Okay, so what kind of crops or forages can we find ergot in? So the the main, uh, the most affected one uh, definitely would be rye, uh, but uh, triticale, wheat, and barley are also affected. Oats is very uh, not very likely. Rarely we see affected, but also there's many grasses uh, even uh, that that we we see that happening out there. Usually we see the cereal crops and some grasses. They're more affected because they are open pollinated, which allow the easy access for the fungus into that flowering head. Okay, so how could a producer identify if there's ergot in the feed? Can they see it? So yeah, when when you have that uh, that seed formation, right, the infection of the fungus takes over it. It changes that and in, into that uh, purplish kind of black bodies. And when you get that grain or those seeds in your hand or in a table, you can kind of see them. They look like uh, mice feces, like little uh, mice feces. So they're black in color. They look different, a little bit like uh, the shape is a little bit different from the grain, a little bit more elongated. Uh, and then if you're like not sure if it's mice feces or other things, like when you break them in the middle, like on the outside, they're black, but in the middle, they're more like white or like lighter in color in the middle. So usually that's a good indication that you have uh, some ergot in that grain. Okay, so we can see it. Can we actually quantify it just by looking at it or do we need to send it into the lab? How do, how do we test for it? We do can uh, have a visual assessment and, and, and quantify as a proportion. Usually when we have 
above around 0.4% of the weight of that uh, sample as, as ergo compared to the total weight, it's a high indication that we have lots, uh, something to be worried. But the problem with that is it doesn't give you, uh, doesn't give us a precise indication how toxic that sample is. So the, the standard or what we kind of recommend is uh, if there is any indication that you can see ergo in that sample, to take that, a sample of that grain and send it to a lab to do a total ergo alkaloid analysis. And here we're not looking at the quantity of that ergo body, but the, the, the quantifying the ergo alkaloids. Uh, at least um, uh, here in Saskatchewan, we have in Saskatoon, the Prairie Diagnostic Service that has a really good method and they, they do a really good job in, in, uh, in quantifying that uh, the total ergo alkaloids in that sample. Well, we've had a few years of pretty dry weather here on the prairies. Uh, right now, we're recording this on May the 19th, and there's some forest fires going on uh, in Alberta and Saskatchewan, and there's some producers have to worry about fires and their livestock, which is probably far more important than ergot. It seems like an unlikely time for ergot, but is it less likely when conditions are dry? What impact does climate have on ergot bodies in, in forages and grains? Yeah, that's a, a good uh, comment there, John. And definitely when we look at infection in crops from year to year, we definitely see that it's quite variable. And a lot is to do with that uh, weather conditions. And usually in dry weathers, we have less um, contamination of cereal grains or forages with uh, ergot. But it doesn't mean that we don't have problems. So in drought years, it's very common to look for any type of feed available that you can buy on a, with lower cost, right, to reduce cost of production. So you're looking for alternative feeds. And one of the biggest problems we have is with screenings, right? So as you look for those screenings as an alternative uh, source of feed for cattle, the, the likelihood of having those screenings contaminated with uh, ergo is much increased. So, so we still have a problem even though we are in a drought year. Uh, because screenings can be quite high. So when we look at the weather conditions that favors their goat, it usually is like when you have cool and wet conditions during the flowering stage. So we still maybe can have a lot of ergot this year if we get the cool and wet conditions during that flowering. So we're still pretty pretty early, see what will happen this year. and But keep an eye if we have that uh, kind of more uh, higher moisture, kind of cooler conditions during the flowering period of those those forages or cereal grains, we can definitely have uh, more ergot this year. Yes, I think the highest alkaloid levels I've ever seen have typically been in screening samples and things like that. They they are a high likelihood uh, feed source for ergot sometimes. And and I was involved very peripherally in a outbreak a veterinarian was dealing with in Alberta this year that ended up being ergot. I wasn't sure that it was, and and they successfully diagnosed it, but they were being fed triticale, those cattle, and and it was a pretty dry year. So yeah, it can happen. So what do these ergot alkaloids actually do to the animal's body? What what do we see? So 
when you look at the literature and, and what people have reported, it's quite, uh, there's a variety of, of signs, clinical signs we can see, right? So basically, definitely the first thing you see is reduced intake and growth of those animals. That starts re even before you see any clinical signs in terms of like um, uh, what we see most often like reported is it can cause green of the extremities. So you can have loss of tails and ears and uh, lameness so you can have even the roof of that animal sloughing off so so those uh, signs we have seen pretty com commonly reported but also they uh, definitely uh, impact their ability to thermoregulate their body so in in the summer or when temperatures are a little bit higher uh, we see signs of heat stress in those animals uh, so those are i guess most common signs we we see when we when, when we have issues with ergoalkaloids. I'm going to go off topic a little bit here, Gabe. So let's just briefly talk about fescue toxicity, because that's something you might read about in the U.S. publications. What's the difference between fescue toxicity and ergodalkaloids? It's quite it's actually quite similar. Like uh, there, the the fungus that infects the those forages there in fa uh, the fescue is uh, is a different fungus, but it does produce similar alkaloids. So the composition of those alkaloids seems to be also a little bit different than what we see with with cereal ergot. But the impact of those alkaloids from what we have seen is quite similar. In the past, I think we were afraid of making some of that connection. But we have been seeing more and more uh, quite similar clinical signs from what they see with fescutoxicosis. What about the rumen microbes? Do these ergot alkaloids have any impact there as well as on the animal itself? So we, we did look into that in one of our studies here. So we did like a we call like an in vitro study or a study in the lab here where we took rumen fluid and we added a lot of ergoalkaloid in a kind of like fermenters with that rumen fluid and look at the microbes there. And we did see like there was a, a decrease in diversity of the microbes associated with that high level of ergoalkaloid. But we were feeding like really high levels in that uh, experiment, right? And also when we looked more in detail from a lot of like microbes that were there, we just saw like three genera that were really impacted. And the impact overall on the microbes, when we as we looked at everything, seemed to be quite small. So it does have some some impact, but it, it the the impact is not like super large, and and it did didn't really affect the ruminal fermentation a lot. So it seems like the microbes itself they can't really do much or change much the alkaloids because animals can't really adapt to other alkaloids. So the the microbes doesn't really break that down. And in terms of that being toxic or changing much, the microbes, we, we don't think that's a lot. There is some impact, there's some little changes, but it's not major. Okay, so you follow that up with your graduate student, Jenna Sarich. You looked at a trial at our Livestock and Forage Center, looking at the various effects of different levels of ergot in feedlot cattle. So tell us about what the different treatments were there. What what were you feeding those cattle and how much ergot was in it? So yeah, so that was our first uh, animal study that we did with, with feedlot cattle. And basically it was a, 
a study that we started with wind calves and took them to the through the backgrounding all the way to finishing and uh, in the backgrounding phase and also in the finishing finishing phase our treatments were increasing levels of ergoalkaloids in the diet so our levels were a control diet with no alkaloids and then we had three other levels so we had 075 1.5 and then the last level was 3 ppm uh, of ergoalkaloids in the diet uh, of those animals so this is on a dry matter basis so just uh, reminding that that can affect how you you look at that you were going to evaluate these animals what were you going to look at as you fed them these different levels of ergot so this was a pretty comprehensive study. We were quite interested, uh, of course, uh, in generating some information for the producer in terms of the impact on intakes, average daily gains, growth, right, performance, feed efficiency. But also we were quite interested in the health aspects and welfare of those animals. So we did collect all the, the information to measure the growth performance of those, of those cattle, the study, but... We also were looking, took a lot of samples like uh, hair samples, blood samples, and we also had some assessments of welfare of those animals throughout the study. Well, I remember getting a call from you one Saturday in the late spring. Describe what you and Jenna observed in those cattle being fed the high ergot diet. Yeah, so uh, it was quite uh, interesting because we were doing that study and so far, we, we did the, the backgrounding and we didn't see anything uh, really happening. And then uh, we started the finishing uh, in terms of clinical science, of course, not on the performance side, but in terms of clinical science, we weren't seeing anything happening. And then we started the finishing, everything was going okay. And then when when started, uh, I think that was April 17th, when we first started to see there was something wrong. So first, I got a call that day or a few uh, day earlier saying that they had treated eight of the animals for i think uh, a brd or bovine respiratory disease however i i knew it wasn't brd because we were late already on the finishing period the animals were adapted to that facility uh, the conditions the weather conditions there, there was no stress happening there was nothing really to suggest that could be brd so and, and they treated or they thought there was BRD, the, the feedlot staff, because they, when they brought the animals that looked sick to the facilities, to the shoot, to, to, to see, they had very high temperature. So we, we stopped. We t- I told them not to do because I thought it was related to, to the treatments. Uh, this was happening just on our high treatment at 3 ppm. And then that's when I contacted contact you, John, to come give us a, a, a hand and, and, and uh, help us out because... Like I said, like we wanted to do a study and understand things, but we don't want to uh, have animals dying or any issues like that. Just to remind people that our highest level is 3 ppm, and according to the CFIA suggestion, right, is to, to limit between 2 and 3 ppm. So we kind of were testing those higher levels because back in 2017, there was a publication by CFIA saying that they were reassessing the levels of some of those mycotoxins in feed. And we thought this was a good study to put because we didn't have a lot of data Canada and with beef cattle with zero ergo alkaloids to really inform some of those decisions. So so I think we're quite happy with this study being funded because it really helped us generate some information to make some better informed decisions. Well, maybe I'll have you describe what those cattle looked like when you drove past one of those high ergot alkaloid diet pens. What did you see when you looked in there at those cattle? 
So when we, like the signs we started to see is, uh, and that it was different than when we first started, like we were talking earlier, in terms of the clinical signs, we were expecting more of those, uh, when we started the study, those uh, frost bites or like uh, losing like tails and ears or some kind of lameness. But what we saw was high respiratory rate. The animals were panting and they also had like a few of them like had their mouth open, kind of extending their tongue out, kind of breathing heavily. Some of them were drooling. And when we took them to the shoot, they had higher temperatures, right? The ones that were really affected. Uh, this was more common on the black hide animals. In the same treatment, the same pen, the animals that were like white in color, like a kind of lighter color, they didn't. Sh they did show some signs, but not even close to the darker color animals. Uh, and we did also see pretty strong drop in intake too in that in those pens. But like you said, you could you could clearly see that that difference by walking through the pens. You could clearly detect which pens were feed, getting fed the higher ergo diet. And just to let people know, in terms of temperature, it wasn't even that hot when they started to show, show those signs, right? So when we started to see those signs, the maximum temperature in the day wasn't even 20 degrees. So the temperature throughout the day was bouncing like the max and minimum between 0 and 20 degrees or just under 20 degrees. So it, wasn't, it was just like really nice kind of weather. And they were showing those really heavy signs of, of kind of heat stress. Yeah, it was sunny those days, but it wasn't super hot yet. So they were showing signs of heat stress. You could also see it in the pen conditions. Those pens, they would be around the water bowl and making a mess of probably slopping the water around. And the, the pen was a lot muddier in those pens than it was in the pens on the low ergot alkaloid diet. So why are we seeing heat stress? It, it's easy to understand why the crew maybe thought it was BRD. They were panting. They had a high temperature. That all sort of makes sense. But it was actually heat stress. Why did we see heat stress in these animals that were on a higher alkaloid diet? So this happens because they have a, a diminished or ability to, to dissipate heat, right, when they, they have that toxicity. And that's why they kind of play with the water and they made that uh, pan kind of muddy because they're trying to roll in that water, try to kind of reduce their body temperature, right? Uh, it's kind of interesting how animals can be smart too, right? They're trying to deal with a, a situation that, that's not very good for them. And But why does do they have that diminished ability to, to dissipate heat? Like, this happens because of the those alkaloids, they promote that vasoconstriction, right, of the peripheral blood, blood vessels, right? And that really uh, reduces the ability of them to dissipate heat through the skin, right? And so that becomes really difficult. So then they start to paint, open their mouth to try to change heat through breathing and all of that. And then they start to hold, roll in the water and, and all of that. But um, that's the main reason we see that happening. Right. So we should add that we decided to stop feeding that high level diet or higher level diet to those cattle uh, just because we were afraid as the temperatures got warmer that it might impact them even more severely. So we did take them off that diet eventually just for animal welfare reasons, right? Yeah. So I think we kind of started to really pay a lot of attention what was happening with them. And because the in the morning and at night, like with cooler temperatures, they, they, they were 
they, they were not doing, uh, they were not showing those clinical signs, then we were okay to keep them for a little bit longer in those treatments and kind of collect some more information. But about three weeks la uh, later, we had a forecast that was showing that temperatures were going to stay higher throughout the night above the 20 degrees it wasn't cooling down at night so when we saw the forecast that forecast we then decided to stop that treatment and then move those animals on the higher ergo treatment at the 3 ppm ergo treatment to the control diet and then we kind of kept them in the study but on a control diet so could you actually measure that restricted blood flow in their skin we didn't do a direct measurement of that, but we did see changes in uh, thermography pictures that we took. So we, we had this heat uh, thermography camera that we were taking pictures of their head. The, and and we, what we wanted to see is what was happening uh, with the, the, in the heat image on the, on the ears. So we did see some changes in temperature in the ears during some periods that could be related to that uh, change in, bl in blood flow and, and some of that. So there is some indication there, but we didn't do direct measurements. It was interesting that the black cattle were much more severely affected too as well. That, that was really obvious when you looked at them from a clinical point of view. So uh, obviously they're absorbing more uh, heat in the sunlight than, than the white cattle are that reflect some of that off. What about performance? Could you see measurable differences in performance yes we did see that and and that was happening even in the treatments that wasn't showing any signs or of of uh, or clinical signs so even the treatment with one ppm had a pretty big reduction in in performance and what do i mean by that they had a reduced intake and a reduced average daily gain so that reduction is where we're anywhere from 10 to 15 percent in intake and average daily gain compared to the control animals uh, and that with that what we also saw is reduced carcass weights and leaner carcass because of that but what was interesting is when we took the uh, animals that were on the higher go treatment 3 ppm from that diet and put on the, them on control they bounced back pretty quickly in terms of performance so they started to eat a lot more and gain a lot more and by the end we kept them for about 40 or 50 days longer i'm not sure anymore but then they they came back and they finished almost in the same weight as the control animals but they didn't really get to the same stage they didn't have the same fatness and also they didn't get the same dressing percentage so it, it, it's pretty the, the effects on growth performance we saw was quite strong by feeding one and a half ppm and three ppm of uh offer good diets right yeah that's really interesting and and Typically, we would have said that one and a half ppm is probably okay, but you still saw a pretty big performance deficit there. So what's the bottom line of that particular study? Well, the bottom line is that the 2 to 3 ppm level is quite high <laughs> uh, that we have now. And, and there is a reason why CFIA was like a revisiting some of those numbers. And, and I think as a producer, we got to appreciate that. We really need to, to make those questions and ask those questions and reassess sometimes things. And, and, and we should be feeding a little bit uh, lower levels. We, we did see increases in body temperature by ergot. We, see, we did see increases in the, uh, decrease, decrease in growth performance. So we should 
we should really take it serious. Ergo is a real bad problem. And cattle, compared to other livestock species, is more sensitive, which sometimes we don't talk about it enough. We think that ruminants and cattle are more resistant to all, resistant to all these mycotoxins. And in this case, it's not. can affect health, welfare, and performance of cattle. So, so it's clearly that uh, it's a big problem. And, and so I guess we, what we need to do is just pay attention to that, uh, recognize and, and make sure we are not feeding uh, levels that are too high. So what would your recommendations be for producers that might have feed sources that are impacted by ergot alkaloids and how would they deal with that? I think the first thing we have to do is when we, we think we have a feed uh, that's contaminated with ergo, we should test it. We need to know how much, we, how much ergo alkaloid is in that, in that feed. So definitely test it. We have a great lab here in Saskatoon. PDS has been really great to work with and they do a good job. Do that testing. And, and one thing is important, the testing is difficult. So like there's no quick or rapid method. So the test that we have here with PDS is an HPLC test that is very complex, but the turnaround from PDS is not very long, so they can uh, get back to you in a week or so. Do the test. Once you have that in hand, what we've been suggesting producers is that, that, that gives us information of how much I can feed of that product. How, depending on how high it is, you can dilute it with other grain sources that are free of ergot with other feeds uh, so that the levels of ergot is not above 0.75 or maximum 1 ppm. So really, uh, I think I've been recommending uh, 1 ppm as a really high maximum level. But uh, if you want to be more conservative, I would even suggest keeping it 0.75 because there's a lot of variation and it can happen between sampling. Like it's really hard to get a good sample of that grain when you're going to analyze. So being conservative probably is a smart idea there. So I know you've done some other studies. What about, oh, I don't want to dilute it, but I'll only feed it for a short period of time and then I'll feed some feeds that don't have ergot in it will would that work as well so we did this is uh, another study right that and that and the question we were asking is uh, a lot of producers sometimes they buy a grain that's contaminated they use that quickly and then the next week they get grain that's not contaminated and so on then you have a cycle that you might have grain contaminated coming in and out so to to address that question we did a study that we fed ergo for one week, and then those animals which we, we moved to a control diet for two weeks. So we had this three-week period. And this three-week period with ergo for one week and no ergo for two weeks was repeated from background all the way to finishing. So this uh, three-week period was since they were weaned that we started the background all the way to the slaughter. And what we saw in terms of growth performance and all, it did not defer to feeding ergo continuously. And in this study, because of our learning with the first study in terms of levels, our, mac our level here was 2 ppm. So we wanted to have a, a level that caused reduced in, uh, reduction in performance and growth, but that did not cause clinical signs. And we were very successful doing that. So we didn't see any clinical signs, but we did see strong reductions in performance again, the same way that we saw for Janus Serich study. That work has been 
conducted by Matthew, my um, um, my other ma uh, master student here at the University of Saskatchewan. So um, that was quite interesting. I was quite surprised with those results. And in addition to that, we tested if we pellet that uh, ergo put that ergo in, in a mix and pellet that, so that that temperature, that process of pelleting, does that reduce toxicity? Uh, we had some previous uh, work being uh, conducted with sheep that indicated that maybe pelleting could help reduce toxicity of the ergot alkaloid, but uh, what we saw was actually that it didn't do anything, and we had very similar results to, to not pelleting and not doing anything at all with that uh, ergo alkaloid. So concluded from that study that pelleting uh, really didn't reduce toxicity of ergo alkaloids. Uh, I, I think that um, the latest thing that we gonna do now that we, we are looking to get funding to conduct, we have a very interesting product from the industry, which is a mycotoxin deactivating product. So that we we wanna test. The, the industry people always ask us about, oh, why, what, what about using a mycotoxin deactivating product, or some people call it a binder? Nowadays, the products are more than a binder. It's not just clay. There's a bunch of other things. So it's a, there's a lot of technology involved in those products. And in the past, we didn't have any product that was specific for ergo. It was very generic uh, mycotoxin deactivating products or binders. So now they are uh, the, the industry has invested in in trying to produce products that are more specific to ergot. One that in vitro, in the lab work that we did, we found a product that uh, seems to be quite interesting to do something that we wanna, wanna try to test as far farther with the animal. So that's probably coming up in our next studies if we can get that funding going and going through. Well, uh, certainly got a lot of great information about your previous studies. Really appreciate you taking time to do this, Gabe. We should emphasize too, we never saw any clinical signs like sloughing of ears or feet or tails that we sometimes see in more severe outbreaks. We didn't see any of those kind of lameness issues or anything like that. One of the outbreaks that I was mentioning before, it was largely a major lameness outbreak. Cattle were sloughing their feet almost and uh, was pretty nasty. So it can be even worse than what you've described in your studies. So certainly an important topic and we want to hope for rain, but we want to hope for rain at the right time, I guess. So anyway, thank you again for doing this, Gabe. Really, really useful information and, and we really appreciate you taking time to do this. Thanks, John. It's always a pleasure to join you on your podcast here. And uh, yeah, anytime, just uh, let me know and I will be happy to, to join you again. Great. Thanks, Gabe. That's our show for this week. Thanks to my guest, Dr. Gabriel Ribeiro, and thanks again to our sponsors, the Alberta Beef Producers and the Beef Cattle Research Council. Thanks to all of you for listening. Please send us any feedback that you'd like to give us. We do appreciate that, and we'll see you again next time.